Thank you for joining us on the Hope Church LV podcast. We are excited that you came across this message. The sermon you are about to listen to is from our study through the New Testament book of James. If you're joining us for the first time, I want to be the first to say, welcome to Hope Church. Do us a favor and text NEW TO HOPE to 94090. After you hit send, you'll get an immediate response from our team with a link to a short form for you to fill out so we can get to know you better. If you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast to help spread hope to the world. Once again, thank you for joining us today. Enjoy the sermon. Amen. Listen, I'm not trying to preach Vance's sermon from last weekend, but that's why we need to gather for what we just experienced together. So check it out. If you're watching online, super glad you're joining us, but um, maybe God's up to something tonight. Really excited about that. Amen. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to James chapter 4. Beginning of this year, we jumped into a book study through the New Testament book of James. We took a break for a few weeks for Easter and some other things, some family business. And now I'm excited to jump back in to James, starting in verse 1 of chapter 4 in just a minute. But as we do that, I want you to think about, has there ever been something in your life that you wanted so bad, some gadget or something that you wanted so bad that you would even go so far as to say, man, I would do whatever it takes to get that thing. I'll do whatever it takes. Some of you are looking at me real spiritual right now, like, what are you talking about? We're not going to do whatever it takes to get a material item. Well, I have, and I'm about to share a story of that. When I was 12 years old, I was in sixth grade, and uh, uh, something took the world by storm. Honestly, this still takes the world by storm, but this was the very, very first one. It was the highest selling electronic of that year, and I wanted it so bad, I would do whatever it took to get that thing. And that thing was, of course, the Sony PlayStation. There it is right there. That's old school, right? I know. They just came out with the PS5. This is the great, 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 great grandfather of the PS5, the Sony PlayStation. I would do whatever. All my friends had it. I was like, man, you got spoiled brats. I don't have that yet. I need that in my life. So I'm telling everybody in my life, I need a PlayStation. My parents weren't really buying that. They're like, you don't need a PlayStation. No, I need a PlayStation. I will do, mom and dad, whatever it takes to get this. So I'm telling everyone I can. One day my stepdad and his best friend are hanging out at the house. And uh, it's after dinner, and I'm talking to my dad, my stepdad's best friend about uh, how I need a PlayStation. Man, I'll do whatever it takes to get a PlayStation. He said, you'll do whatever it takes to get a PlayStation. I'll do whatever it takes to get a PlayStation. And God provided in that moment something for me in the form of a little cricket bouncing around in my house. Some of you know where this is going. He said, you'll do whatever it takes. I said, I'll do whatever it takes. He said, I dare you to go grab that cricket. And if you right now, sorry for you weak stomach people, if you eat that cricket right now, I will go to the store and buy you a PlayStation tonight. Now, I know not everybody in the room knows me super well. If, I get de- if there's any sort of competitive environment, I'm like, you're tell- I went and caught it, immediately caught it. I have it in my hand. I said, you're telling me if I eat this cricket right now, you will go buy my 12-year-old self a PlayStation. He said, I'll do that right now. And it barely came out of his mouth. And I threw that thing in my mouth and I ate that cricket. Sorry for joining us online, enjoying your breakfast. Hope that's good for you. But I ate that cricket and I threw a party. I- and his face was just like, What? And an hour later, I was sitting on my couch playing Crash Bandicoot on the PlayStation. 
You better believe it. Why do I tell that story? I'm, I'm not even kidding. I would have done, obviously, whatever it took to get what I wanted. And here's what we're going to see in the book of James. You and I, as people, we have the capacity to do whatever is necessary to get what we want. And that's not always a good thing. But God, in his grace and mercy, is willing to do whatever it takes to get what he wants. And that's what James is going to unpack for us. So I want to read James chapter 4, starting in verse 1. We're going to read seven verses. They're going to be on the screen in case you didn't bring your Bible today. Here's what James 4, 1 through 7 says. What causes quarrels among you? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? By the way, he's about to go there. He's about to kind of get in our face with some of this text you'll see in just a minute. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Oof. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? And praise God for verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Those seven verses have a lot of stuff in them. And we're going to get into verse by verse what on earth James is talking about here. And in case you are new to our church, maybe join us at Easter, this is what James has been doing for three chapters. He's just kind of been pushing into those places that are a little uncomfortable for him to push into. I love the book of James, how real it is, how practical it is. It's kind of up in our face, practical following of Jesus. So what is James saying here? He starts this text off by talking about fights and quarrels. We read fights and quarrels and we think like disagreements. He's talking about like these people in the church are fighting about what kind of music they like or what preachers they're favored or whatever. But in the original language, this is a much, much, much stronger word. What James is really referring to is here is all the commentators agree he's really referring to war. He's saying, hey, Christians. Remember, the book of James was written to Christians. So all of this is in context of people who are following Jesus. That will come really important later on. He says, hey, Christians, you guys are not just like bickering. You guys are at war with each other to the point where he's mentioning things like murder and some pretty intense things. He talks about this idea of war. And we've seen this all throughout the book of James. He's constantly addressing tensions that they had within their body. Tensions that we have within the body of Christ. And he's saying we belong to the same family. We have the same Holy Spirit in us. Why are you at war with each other? And then he double clicks on that. And he's about to explain the why behind the war. And I want to do that. I want to unpack this text really by giving two realities. And they're not going to be super easy to hear, but I think it's what the Bible is saying in James chapter 4. Here's the first simple but very significant reality. We, that's if you're a Christian in the place, if you're a Christian online, the people that were getting this book from James, we want in and of ourselves 
what is wrong. That's coming in a little hot. I get it. But let's read what it says. He says, you guys are warring against each other. And you guys read it. I heard some, what? What's, what's that about, right? Why are these, why are these things happening? Because there's a war going on inside of you. You desire, so you want something and you don't get it. So what do you do? You kill. It's like, what? Has that happened at Hope Church? I don't know. But that happened in the Jerusalem church. You covenant cannot obtain, so you wage war against your brothers and sisters in Christ. What is James saying here? I think to truly understand what James is saying here, we have to remember a very important spiritual reality. And what I'm about to unpack for just a minute, I'm going to put the book of James on pause for a minute. We have to remember because sometimes getting around this idea that we're going to talk about is very important for us as Jesus followers to remember. Whether or not you've heard it a thousand times or this is the very first time you've heard it. I love reading a lot of the old, we call them the old dead guys. These guys that have written amazing things that have gone on to heaven. And a lot of times they press into this idea of what we're going to talk about, which is this. The Bible says very clearly that you and I have a sinful nature in and of ourselves. Bible calls it the flesh. And I think it's important to always go back to that. If you come to Hope Church, you're going to know we're always going to go back to that. Why? Because when we remember, when we remember, when we stop remembering where we were, we start taking credit for where we are. So if I don't always go back to the fact that I was helpless and hopeless apart from Christ, all of a sudden I'm going to start taking credit for the work he's done in my life. So I'm constantly going back to remember who I was before Christ. So we're going to do a little theology lesson here today. Again, for some, this is review. For some, this is new. But the Bible says very clearly that you and I were born into this world sinful. We are not blank slates when we come into this world. We are born into this world broken and separated from a relationship with Jesus. It started with our, our great ancestors, Adam and Eve. They disobeyed God, but we followed suit and we continue to disobey God. We don't have a time to, to go around the room and share stories, but I'm going to go ahead and bet that nobody here or nobody watching online had a perfect week where they never said anything wrong, they never thought anything sinful, and they never went left with somebody in their conversation. Anyone volunteering for that? Why? Because you and I have a sin nature. I love the way the book of Ephesians unpacks it. Good theology, by the way, it keeps us grounded. This is important. So we're going to go back to this because this has to do with what James is talking about in this passage. Why he's talking about fighting and wars and murder and coveting inside the church. The book of Ephesians in chapter 2, probably my favorite passage of scripture. In the first two verses, it paints this really dark picture. It talks about that apart from Jesus, you and I are spiritually hopeless. It goes as far as to say we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And it picks it up in verse 3. It's on the screen. All of us used to live that way. By the way, that all, that's all of us used to live that way. Following the passions and desires and inclinations, here it is, of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject of God's anger, just like everyone else. And verse 4 is my favorite verse in all of Scripture because that, if the story ended there, this would be a very dark and scary story of humanity because it should have ended there if it weren't for God's grace. That's what it says in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2. But God. If, you don't, if you're not an underliner in your Bible, I, I recommend you start today and you underline that in your Bible. If there's not a but God, we are helpless and hopeless. But God is so rich in mercy. He's so rich in mercy. And he loved us so much that even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he saved us. 
I love verse 6. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. And I know that is review for some. But remember, we got to remember where we came from so we don't take credit for where we are. So this is what James is getting at here. James is unpacking this idea that you and I have a sin nature. I hope this is freeing for some of you right now because the reality is when you get saved, I don't care if it was on Easter Sunday or if it has been decades and decades, when you get saved, here's the sobering reality, your sinful nature doesn't go away. Your sinful nature, my sinful nature remains And God puts his Holy Spirit inside of us and now there's a war going on. And that's what James is talking about here. You and I can't educate ourselves or pay our way out of our spiritual bankruptcy. Only God can save. And when he saves, now you and I are dependent on him as we war against the flesh every single day. You say, put some Bible on that. Galatians chapter 5. If you want to... The two passages of scripture that I love the most talking about this idea of the war going on inside of you. If you've ever felt like, man, why do I mess up? Why do I sin? Why do I still stumble? I've been following Jesus for 20 years. Well, the Bible tells you in Romans chapter 7 and in this passage right here, Galatians chapter 5. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Those are both in you. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. I hope today you're relieved at the fact that you're not crazy. If you're coming into this place wondering why you you mess up and you struggle. The struggle is real, not just for you, but for every person who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit who is still struggling with that sinful nature. See, we get discouraged. We think, man, something must be wrong with me. And a lot of times, to be honest with you, we, we idolize certain Christians. Like there's some perfect people out there. If there's a perfect Christian in your life, run away from them because they are not perfect. A little closer to home, this is really important for us. I love at Hope Church. I've been coming here for almost over 15 years. I love at this church. Nobody on this stage is wearing a cape like a superhero Christian. Nobody on this stage is coming out here and acting like we're perfect. We're just desperate people who are dependent on God's grace, just like you. One of the guys that I follow that has spoken into my life from afar through books and sermons, and we quote him a lot here. He's a guy who's been in ministry for over six decades. His name's John Piper. He said something a few, I read it a few years ago that I thought, man, that is both encouraging and sobering. He said, I've been following Jesus with my whole heart and soul for over 65 years. And every single day, I struggle. Again, encouraging, I'm not crazy. Sobering, wow, there's a fight in me. There's a fight in you. So that's what James is is referring to here. When he's talking to Christians about the fact that there's warring going on in their church, it's because there's warring going on inside their hearts. And the reality is your flesh wages war when it doesn't get what it wants. So he unpacks that. He says, you, you want something and you don't get it, so you murder. Now, I don't know if these are actual murders. None of the historians can tell us. I mean, was there actual killing going on in the Jerusalem church? Maybe. Never doubt the ability of the flesh. Maybe. Or is James tapping into what his big brother used to preach? If you don't remember, James, his big brother, is Jesus himself. 
Jesus, some of you know, in, in, in Matthew chapter 5, he gave what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And I love as Jesus is talking to all these disciples, he's teaching them kingdom principles. And in, G, in, in Matthew chapter 5, he, he, he's sharing about all the things that they've heard. They're coming from a religious background. And he says things like this. He says, you've heard it said, don't murder. That's really good. Don't kill people. But I say to you, if you stop yourself from actually committing murder, but you have murderous hate in your heart for your brother, you've already committed murder with them in your heart. He says, uh, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Amen, that's good. I don't think anybody would be down with that here or there. Don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you're walking around with lust in your eyes and lust in your mind, you've already committed adultery in your heart. What is Jesus doing here? I love it. Jesus is changing the scorecard. He's changing the scorecard from make sure you have a good outward appearance and don't worry about the, the heart. No, Jesus is saying it's not just about external conformity, what you look like on the outside. Jesus was after internal transformation. I want to change your heart. And James is hammering this point. Left to ourselves, you and I want what is wrong. Our flesh wants what is wrong. And just like that PlayStation, your flesh will do whatever it takes to get what it wants. And if you're doubting that right now, pray to Jesus that he humbles your heart right now because your flesh will do whatever it takes to get what it wants. James hits us right between the eyes and says, you want what is wrong. But there's a second reality. Encouraging. God wants what is his. Amen. Still got a little bit of hard text to deal with in James chapter 4, verse 4. James comes out and says, you adulterous people. We're going to get there, what he's talking about. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is strong stuff. Or do you suppose it has no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously for the spirit he put in you? What does it mean to be a friend of the world? We're going to get to the adultery thing. Don't worry. I know you're waiting for that. friendship with the world. Before we talk about that, what it meant for these people, we got to kind of do some work in our day and age with the word friendship. It's kind of a, a junk drawer, if you know what I mean. I mean, friendship before social media meant friendship. Like if I said I had a friend, that means I knew your name. I probably knew your family. You came over to my house. I knew things about you. Now friendship it's kind of this weird, like, if you've ever had that moment where somebody tries to add you as a friend on Facebook and you got to, like, do a little digging to find out how you even know this person. You know what I'm talking about? They're friends. It's like, I think I've seen them at church somewhere. That is not the readers of this book. And for us, that is not, it's not this, like, like kind of half, half, haphazard, like, uh, following or, or liking certain things of the world. This is an intimate relationship. That's how the readers in the first century would have read this. Friendship wasn't what it is now. Friendship was what a true meaning was. You know me, I know you, we're friends. You could say, if I have friends in the first century, those are my people. I do life with them. 
So that helps us understand when James says don't be friends with the world. What is the world? Of course, some of you know, but the world does not mean the, the actual earth, right? This is not talking about the, the good thing that God created. All throughout the New Testament, we see this idea of the world being a spiritual system made up of basically everything that is anti-God. We have places all over scripture. First John 5 comes to mind where, where we are told, don't love the world. This idea of the spiritual system made up of values, beliefs, morals, things that are anti-God. James says here, friendship, intimate relationship with the world is enmity with God. What does that word mean? I love it. It means being actively opposed to. Actively opposed to. This is this picture where he's saying if you start to, to befriend the world, if you as a Christian, as a Jesus follower, start to make the world your people, you are actively opposing God. That's strong. My family and I, we do a family movie night every Friday. And I don't know, a couple months ago, we watched one of my favorite movies ever. If you haven't seen it, like tonight, go see it or, or, or rent it. Uh, it's called Hook. You guys know it's Robin Williams and, and Dustin Hoffman. And it's amazing, amazing retelling of the Peter Pan story. And there's this moment I thought about when I was, was kind of just looking over this today where, where they, Peter Pan, I don't want to, I'm going to give the whole movie away, sorry. Peter Pan goes to Neverland and he doesn't think he's Peter Pan. And so there's a moment where he's trying to, the, the, the lost boys are trying to convince him that he is Peter Pan. But there's this other lost boy named Rufio who like has taken over since Pan left. And there's this moment where he draws a line in the sand and he steps back. And they're wondering who's on Pan's side and who's on Rufio's side. That's the picture that James is trying to paint here. There's a line in the sand. And here's what we like to do. We like to straddle the line. James is saying, you can't do that. Even straddling the line is opposing God. This idea of befriending the world. It's this idea of flirting with the enemy. That's why he talks about adultery. What is adultery? Being unfaithful in a relationship. As Jesus followers, we are in a relationship with God. James paints this picture. You don't just like, you're not totally committed to this relationship. Like me and my wife, right? me and wife Candace, I'm not totally related to this relationship. But I got a couple things going over here on the side. But I'm not really committing adultery. And I want to be sensitive here. I know this is tapping into some real life stuff that we deal with. But James calls them adulterers. What's he saying? He's saying you call yourself a Christian with a relationship with God, but you're flirting with the enemy. And you're carrying on relationships and you're not being faithful to the relationship that God has given you. You are actively making yourself an enemy of God. You're cheating on that relationship. What does it look like? I want to be practical here today. What does it look like practically to have friendship with the world? I, I thought about my own life. I asked the Lord, I said, God, give me some ideas of ways that you have revealed to me that sometimes I try to walk that line in the sand. What are some ways that, what, what does friendship with the world look like? Here's a few that hopefully will be helpful. When I am walking in friendship with the world, when I'm inviting the world to my table in relationship and my flesh is winning, my truth takes priority over God's truth. 
Again, I can't speak for you. I can speak for me. God, I said, when have I messed this up? My truth, what does that mean? My thoughts and opinions all of a sudden start taking priority over his written, inspired, and errant word. I love this idea of my truth, by the way. I kind of hammered on it last time I spoke. It's kind of one of the things I'm on right now. Like this idea of people like me and my age, everyone's talking about my truth. Like I've heard it a lot. Have you ever thought about this? What if my truth says your truth is a lie? Is it still true? That'll hit some of you guys later like, whoa. I can't have a truth that I say this is my truth and you can't have a truth because at some point those are not going to cross over. There is one truth and we know we have the author of truth and that is God himself. And so I don't have a truth. But if I'm being friends with the world, my truth starts to take priority over God's truth. I got to hurry. Here's the second thing. I lose my sensitivity to the spirit of God. I'm walking in some stuff and what used to sting a little bit, that wasn't God reprimanding me. That was God drawing me away from what is making me an enemy of him. But guess what? I start to get callous to that. It's like playing guitar. I don't know how many of you play guitar, but the first like six months are terrible because your fingers always hurt. I started playing guitar when I was 13 years old and I thought I'll never get past this pain. But guess what happened? The strings stopped stinging because I kept going. And now every weekend when you see me up here, my fingers aren't hurting at the end of a weekend. Why? Because I've been playing guitar for over half my life. I have become callous to the strings. If we're not careful, we become callous to the speaking and the voice of the Holy Spirit because we're constantly pushing forward. Last one, and we won't spend a lot of time here. When I am befriending the world, my glory becomes ultimate and God's glory becomes optional. I'm thinking way more about myself than about what my life represents for the kingdom of God. In case you haven't heard, everything in the universe exists for God's glory. We've kind of lost that, honestly. Not us as a church, but just in general, you listen to all the most popular preachers, all the most popular books. It's about you and how you can make your life better. And a lot less talk about God and his infinite, amazing, incredible, indescribable glory, which is why, by the way, he created everything. So that's what, for me, maybe for you, you can resonate a little bit. Maybe you have others. But when I'm befriending the world. And then he says in verse 5, something that honestly makes some Christians a little nervous. Talking about committing adultery in our hearts, talking about following the world, having intimate relationship with my flesh and letting my flesh lead. He says in verse 5, he yearns jealously. This is not something new to this passage. All over God's word, we find passages where God talks about being a jealous God. What does that mean? This is a hard thing to talk about. In fact, I looked up this week as I was studying for this, I found out, and I don't know if this is true, but it was in an article and I, I, didn't, I didn't find out from her mouth because I don't know her. She's the, she's the richest woman on planet Earth, so I don't like call her every day. But Oprah Winfrey, she actually traces this back to why she's not a Christian. She says, I was in a church service when I was a young teenager and the preacher started talking about the jealousy of God. And I thought, if God's so emotional that he gets jealous, I'll never follow that God. 
Somebody told me this week that's Brad Pitt's story too. Yeah, I'm not into the jealousy of God, so I bailed. What does it mean that God is jealous? I mean, is this, let's be real, is this this insecure? We even hear that and maybe even some of you are like, yeah, what does that mean? Is this like an insecure jealousy because he doesn't know what to do? Is, is God in the corner like a jealous boyfriend or girlfriend pouting because you're over there flirting with the world? That's what some of us think. I don't really know what it means God is jealous. Next page, right? What does it mean that God is jealous? God is not jealous about you. God is jealous for you. Listen, he wants what is his. And he will do whatever it takes to get what is his. Some of us understand this. If you're a parent, you understand this principle. You might not say it like this, but when you talk about your kids and what they're leaning their lives into or what they are spending their time with or the friends they're hanging out with, you're not jealous because you wish they'd text you more. You're jealous over their affections and where they're placing their affirmation and their identity. You're, you're going, man, I don't want this for you. You better believe God is jealous over your heart's affections and what you are leaning into. I want to kind of wrap today up by showing a movie clip. I don't know if you came to church today expecting to kick back for a movie clip, but we're going to do it. I love this movie, but as I was studying for this, I realized, man, I actually haven't seen this movie since I've had kids. And I want to watch it again now that I have kids because I think it would change the game. But it's, it came out in 2008. Some of you guys will know this movie. But it's about a father who loves his daughter so much, nothing will stop this man from rescuing his daughter. He's a CIA operative. And, and, and he finds out, he gets a call that his daughter has been kidnapped. His daughter has been taken by human traffickers to Paris, France. And as a CIA operative, he tells him, I, I'm coming for you. He flies to France, he tracks his daughter's kidnappers down, he finds a way to make contact with the kidnappers. And I want, to, I want you to show you the conversation, the very iconic conversation he has with those kidnappers. Watch this video. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you are looking for a ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I've acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. Now, I am not advocating for that kind of violence. <laughs> However... Here's what I want us to see. Right there is a passionate father who literally will do whatever it takes to get to his kid. If you know the end of the movie, sorry for ruining it for you. He gets her. He's bloodied. He's beat up. He's gone through all of it to get her. And he's holding her at the end in his arms. He's holding his little girl, which he rescued. And she looks up at him and she says, Daddy, you came. And he looks at her and he says, I told you I would. That's this idea of God's jealousy. 
we got to ditch the idea that it's some jealous boyfriend or girlfriend over here that's just upset at your affections being pointed not towards them. They are like Liam Neeson who's going, listen, I will do anything to get my kids. You came for me. I told you I would. Jealousy of God should not make us nervous. It should make us praise him for his passion towards us. And then check this out. I love this. James brings it home. We got to go. James brings it home in verse 6. After all that, after calling them murderers and adulterers, he says this and he says this to them and this is to us. But he, that's God, gives more grace. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Wherever you are today, I hope you know that God gives more grace. I don't care if you walked in here and you've never been to church in your life. I don't care if you've been to church for more than six, seven decades. I don't care if right now you've had a whole bunch of things going on that you didn't even know if you were worthy to walk into this place. God is jealous after your heart. He'll do whatever it takes to get to his kids and he gives more grace. God opposes the proud, it says, and gives grace to the humble. You know what she was in that moment on that boat when he rescued her? She was humble. She's looking up at her dad who did so much to come get her. She says, Daddy, you came. That's our response. And we look at our sinfulness and we look at what God's done in our lives and we look at this greater grace he's given us. What's our response? Humility. God, wow, you came for me. Yeah, I told you I would. I love this idea of God being opposed to the proud and give grace to the humble. What does that mean? I've heard it illustrated like this that I love it. Nobody goes to the Grand Canyon, right? You got to track with me. This is a little side tangent for a minute. Nobody goes to the Grand Canyon. If you've ever been, I mean, it's beautiful. It's amazing. It's like, wow, how big is this? Nobody looks at the beauty and the awesomeness of the Grand Canyon and elbows his buddy and tells his buddy how much he can bench press, Right? In the sense of all this bigness, humility. I'm not going to boast about myself. I'm not trying to flex when I'm looking at the Grand Canyon. I'm not going to go outside with all the wonders of the stars and see all the goodness of God in the galaxies that we just keep finding more and more galaxies in this expanding universe that God created. Nobody looks up at all that and says, man, but you know how much money I made last month? When we behold the beautiful, it makes us humble. Listen, as Christians, God forbid we're ever arrogant Christians because we've been given so much by God and we did nothing. The only thing you brought to the table in your salvation is your sin. Humility. Wow, God. That's the good news. He gives more grace. No matter what kind of grace you need, maybe you need a a whole dump truck full of grace today. He gives that. Maybe today you're like, man, by God's spirit and God's grace, I did well today. Praise God. Here's some more grace for tomorrow. This is the good news. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter what your week has looked like, no matter what your thought life has looked like, no matter what sin you're walking in right now, he gives more grace. We shout it from the rooftops here at Hope Church because it's important for us to remember you and I can never out the grace of God. There's nothing you can do that crosses that line where God goes, okay, I'm done. I've forgiven you so much. You just keep blowing it. No, he gives more grace. And just when you think it's all out, he gives more grace. 
Liam Neeson didn't hold his daughter and give her all the things that she did wrong in that moment. So that's what some of you think. If I come to God right now, he's just going to reprimand me because I lived a hard life, man. If I go to God right now, I'm going to have to deal with all this stuff. And I don't, I, don't, I don't want to have to answer for all of my sin. He gives more grace. Some things you might have to walk out, of course. But God's not looking at you wagging his finger saying, you keep messing up. So what's our response? Verse 7. Submit to God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. Don't try to do this two thing where I'm in the world and I'm loving Jesus. I'm in the world. Listen, that makes you an enemy of God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. God today, for some of you, whether you're online or you're in the room, I believe and I've been praying that God today would so move in your life where you're thinking, did God really come for me? And he would in your heart right in this moment say, I told you I would. And he did. Through Jesus Christ, God stepped into our mess, our humanity, He stepped into that when he didn't have to. He did it because he loved us. He died on the cross. He literally took all of our sin. He had none and he took it all. He was nailed to the cross. He was killed. The Bible says all of God's wrath was not poured on you. All of God's wrath was poured on him for you. And he rose again to prove that it wasn't fake. To prove that it wasn't a farce and it wasn't just, it wasn't a coincidence of what he said and what he, what he said he was going to do. It was true. And today, he says, I came for you. Our, our response, submit to God. Say yes. Thanks for listening to the Hope Church LV podcast. If you haven't done so already, go rate and review our podcast to help spread hope to the world. Have a great rest of your day.